Hello, and thank you for tuning in to our Pack Politics podcast. So, guys, I have uh, something that I have to start this episode with. Yesterday was supposed to be this episode. Okay. Uh, yesterday, I kid you not, I spent a great deal of time recording this episode only to find out that the entire time my mic was on mute. Okay. Uh, and I had started recording the episode later in the day. And so by the time I made that gruesome and awful discovery, it was just too late. I was too frustrated. And I was like, you know what? I guess it is not meant to be today. So it will be today. All right. So yesterday we were supposed to talk about our official stand uh, opposing Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and her run for the office of president of the United States of America in the 2020 election. The forces of the universe, God, whoever you want to say, they did not want us to talk about this yesterday. So we're talking about it today. Okay. We've made some changes to the calendar uh, and I'm super, super, super just saddened by the fact that I didn't get this out yesterday because like I said, I was recording, I was fully pumped and I was like, oh, it's going to be good. This is going to be a good one. And I thought it sounded great, but too bad you'll never be able to hear what I recorded yesterday. You'll only get what comes out today. So uh, I, I do apologize for not being on yesterday, but I clearly was looking to be on and in, in a the forces out there just didn't want you to hear from me, but you're hearing from me today. All right. So again, the topic of the discussion for this episode is our official opposition to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and her declared, uh, uh, candidacy for president of the United States of America. So sit back and let's get this started. And if I may, I just want to note that not only did I check the mic before this recording, but now as part of my pre-recording uh, list of things to do is to do a live and hot mic check. So <laughs> we shouldn't have that happen again in the future. All right, let's go ahead and let's get started. In case you were like, who in the heck is this crazy woman I'm listening to? I'm your host. My name is Brittany McDowell. Uh, I not only host this podcast, but I serve uh, in, a, in a multifaceted capacity here in the organization. And our organization, in case you don't know, is our United Resource Pack. We're a tax-exempt political organization. Uh, on a quick note, our Facebook page, if you like us on Facebook, you may have seen the update that we officially changed the name of our Facebook page. Um our URL has stayed the same, but when we created the Facebook page, we created it under the name Our-Pack, um, but we changed it to our official name, Our United Resource Pack, and that's what our O-U-R stands for. It's kind of like an acronym thing, but just to limit confusion, we just decided, yeah, it's a little bit longer. It takes a few more breaths to say, but we'll just go ahead and change the name to Our United Resource Pack. So if you uh, have followed us on Facebook already, you might note that change. You don't have to do anything. You don't have to go and, you know, search for like it automatically will update for you. So just putting that out there, okay? Um, also, if this is your first time taking a listen to the podcast, uh, if you're wondering what we talk about on this podcast, uh, we talk about 
The politics of five key issues will soon be expanding to six because we're going to be taking on another area of focus as an organization, but currently we're at five. Those issues are abortion, welfare reform, rideshare regulation, illegal immigration, as well as biological gender. So if any of those issues are of issues that are of importance to you, if you're slightly interested or intrigued by the issues, you definitely want to make sure to stay connected to this podcast podcast, you know, and one of the things that's super cool that I love to stress every time I tell you what we talk about on this podcast is the fact that we're more than talk, okay? Remember, we're a tax-exempt political organization. This podcast is merely just a marketing tool for our organization. So as soon as the podcast is done, we get to work making change on the issues and exactly how we do that as a political org is we look to elect politicians or defeat politicians on the local, state, and federal level based on where they stand on the issues we talk about. Okay, so that's totally neat. Again, we're more than just talk here, all right? So if you want to be notified of the newest episodes for the podcast episode for the podcast, make sure uh, the best way to do it is to like us on Facebook. And I mentioned earlier, our name has changed to Our United Resource Pack. So you can type that in and you'll find us that if you don't want to type us, you can just look in the description box of this episode. You'll find a link that if you click it, it'll take you right to our Facebook page, okay? And again, you'll be notified. You'll get, you know, in your Facebook feeds, uh, you'll get the episodes that we upload rather than continuously looking for us on your podcast platform of choice. We like to make it easy for you. The first thing that I want to do in this episode before we get into the nitty gritty of the details of why, again, we officially are coming out in opposition to having Senator Kirsten Gillibrand be the next president of the United States, I want to start by reading you the press release that we issued again, and this came out the day before yesterday, okay? Uh, I'm going to read it to you, but if you want to check it out for yourself, if you look in the description of this episode, you will find a link to the actual press release. So I'm reading again directly from our press release, okay? Our United Resource PAC will run independent expenditures against Senator Kirsten Gillibrand in the 2020 presidential election for immediate release. Reno, Nevada, June 18th, 2019. This just in. Our United Resource PAC and Independent Expenditure Only Political Action Committee what that means, guys, is a super PAC, uh, announced that it will, for the 2020 election, run independent expenditures against the 2020 presidential candidate, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand. Our United Resource PAC will run independent expenditures against Senator Kirsten Gillibrand for the following reasons. Her vote against funding U.S. Customs and Border Protection, her vote on H.J. Res 46, that's House Joint Resolution 46, her overall support of illegal immigration, her overall failure to support biological gender. That's it, guys. It's a pretty short press release. Again, you can find it in the description box of this episode. The second vote, remember, there were two votes that we really had a problem with, okay? The second vote that we took issue with was her vote of yay, which is her support of 
House Joint Resolution 46, H.J. Res 46. If you don't know what that was, that was a joint resolution to override a veto that the president did on a bill that repealed his national emergency declaration. Okay. If you're like, what in the heck? That's a lot. No, no, no. Okay. Do you remember when the government was shut down because President Trump declared a national emergency because of the migrant caravans? Uh, you know, when we had those record numbers of illegal aliens and they were coming in droves. And again, the main word being thrown around on cable news networks and even online was caravans, uh, the caravans that President Obama and other politicians said didn't exist. And then they couldn't deny it anymore. And then they had to show and the one where Jim Acosta, you know, you, you know those caravans and, and that whole debacle that happened before the last election around October. You remember that when they were walking and then they were estimating how long the illegal aliens would get here and they were demanding that they, and they were like placed in, do you remember all of that? Okay. Uh, hopefully you do. Okay. So what her vote was, was of, okay. You gotta, you gotta follow, follow what I'm about to say here. Okay. So the president declared a national emergency. Okay. And there was when he did that national emergency, there was a bill. I'm trying to think of how to say it tonight because I like I don't I don't want to like confuse you here. Just put it like this: she was against the national emergency, okay? Because I mean, when you start talking about a bill and a veto, and you know, the vote like people can get confused. But but okay, she did not want the declaration of a national emergency. And, and let's get even more specific. <clears throat> Excuse me. When you look at what president Trump was willing to try to shut the government down over, it wasn't just the simple fact that he want, he wanted to uh, avoid the migrants coming in. The main thing he was asking for was funding for a border wall. Okay. Remember, hopefully you remember what I'm talking about. I'm trying too much to both not confuse you and then kind of I'm trying to take you back into the past, but hopefully it's not too far back in the past if you don't remember. But um, anywho, by, by ultimately casting the vote that she did, again, she made her intentions clear, okay? Senator Kirsten Gillibrand does not even still want a border wall. She's very adamantly against it as, as much as she was then. Um, quite frankly, if you ask the organization, you know, we have the view that she has chosen and continues to choose illegal aliens uh, and, and their well-being over the safety, security, and well-being of Americans. Uh, and, and quite frankly, we're going to remember this. We remember when it happened and we remember it now and we're going to remember it as we get closer to the 2020 elections, okay? That is our remembering of that is precisely uh, a majority of what fuels our opposition to her being the next president of the United States of America. Now, I'd be doing a disservice if I didn't um, let a few things be known, okay? There are a few things that I, I quite frankly, uh, am obligated to let you know about Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and her track record, uh, especially if we're talking about um, her potential for even being 
the next president of the United States, which we have to talk about since we're talking about the fact that that's even possible, right? Um, as much as you might be hearing just the very just top part of the layers we're going to go into during this episode about why she is not the best candidate for president of the United States. Uh, before we dive further, while you might be thinking at this point, yeah, no, we definitely don't want her. She doesn't care about Americans. Oh, she definitely doesn't have a chance. Uh, let me, let me, let me, you know, I, I, I'd be remiss to not Again, point out the facts. You know I love dealing in facts, okay? She's run three political races, and she has won all three. So she has a track record of winning, okay? Now, I understand the races she has been winning are very different from the race she is in now. Uh, and I understand that just given the sheer number of candidates that um, it, you know, compared to the number of candidates in previous races, she's in a different ballgame, but that still does not take away from the fact that she has a track record of winning, okay? Something else to consider is that she's very well-funded, somewhere between 20 and $30 million, and these aren't necessarily her most recent numbers, um, but uh, based on the information we have on her funding, because remember, I tell you, we do a lot of research on the back end, everything from votes to funding and all that good stuff, we go in on the research so we know who we are making these official stands on when we decide who to support and who not to support, okay? But she, she, she's got that funding, okay? Uh, she has, uh, when you look at, you know, those two things together, she has a history and, and uh, a, a history and track record of winning, and then she has the money. Um, those are two things that are very, very necessary uh, in order to to make this thing happen. So before you get in a position where you start to discount her, especially again, as I dive further and deeper into why she's not qualified, don't for a second let these reasons make you think that she has no chance because she absolutely does, especially, and I, I, I have to note this, especially if People like you, listeners of this podcast, continue to think what the people in the in the political stratosphere would love to have you believe. Okay, P a lot of people in the political stratosphere and in, in the in these political games would love to have you, as the average American, think that all you got to do is vote. Your vote counts. Your vote matters. It absolutely does. But trust and believe me when I tell you that if you are going to depend on your vote and your vote alone, a significant majority of the time you are going to win. First and foremost, simply because there are a lot more people other than you that vote, okay? Uh, the other voters outnumber you, you know, millions to one, okay? Um, but secondly, the way our politics in this country is set up, uh, regardless of how you feel about campaign finance and money and politics, the game as it currently is played requires money. You have to pay to play, okay? Uh, you hear a lot of people talk about, you know, oh, corporations, you know, they influence politics and they do this and they control politics. They they absolutely and utterly do. Uh, case in point, our organization. Uh, I'll tell you now, we don't control politics. Um, but I will say this, 
we are, again, and I've said it before, we're a super PAC. Most super PACs are set up to cater to either a very small set of wealthy individuals who contribute to that PAC and to do influence elections in the name of that PAC. If that's not the case, they are set up to cater to corporations. Uh, some of them are connected PACs, meaning they're a direct extension uh, of uh, of an organization and, and they influence uh, the elections and, and uh, for the organization, but kind of as a separate entity. Um, and so a majority of our space as a super PAC caters to organizations and the majority also caters to wealthy, like super wealthy individuals. Okay. Like don't have to work for several lifetimes over wealthy. Um, and so it's not, I mean, it's, it's becoming, you know, pretty, it's not super common, but you are seeing a lot more super PACs being, um, either, uh, you're starting to see a lot more super PACs now that actually are looking to work with individuals and and work on behalf of individual uh, Americans as opposed to wealthy individuals and uh, corporations. But here's the thing. I'm keep in mind, I'm not about to make a pitch asking you for money. So don't think that. But I just want to let you know that it's not just enough for you to think that you can listen to just for instance our podcast or or read our blog posts or connect with us on Facebook or join our email list or however you could it's not just enough to take the information and even just to share it okay because how you influence the elections is you have to take money to get your message out even on social media let's say you share it every episode we put out, let's say you share every blog post that we write, you still have a very limited circle, okay? But when you have money, you can use that money to get in the feeds, get on the TVs, get on the radios of so many more people that you personally can't really get your message out to. So that's the importance of money in politics. Again, regardless of how you feel about it, it's it's kind of given the space that we're in, it's kind of a necessity. So I say all that to say this, and I'm drawing this back to Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, okay? She has a lot of money. So she has a lot of potential given that money to get her message out. She has a lot of potential to influence people to you know, believe in the ideology she believes and to kind of sway their opinions in her favor or to be able to cast negative light on her opponent. She has a lot of money to do that. How you counter that is not by just your single vote. Your vote is important, but it's not enough. You have to counter that message with another message. And the only way to get that message out is with money. So that said, before I continue, Take all of what I said and take this away from it. Uh, again, your vote alone is not enough. And if you are really serious about the issues you say you care about, you have to find a way, whether it's through our organization, another organization, or whatever, to put your money while you're, where your mouth is. Okay, because if you don't put your money while you're where your mouth is, other people such as Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, they're going to be putting their money where their mouth is so they can take that money and get their mouths to get that message out to other people. And then don't be surprised when you look up 
and they're the candidates that win. Don't be surprised when you look up and legislation is passed that is against everything that you were against because you weren't willing to say, you know what, I believe in this enough. Not saying you have to, you know, give the equivalent of your car payment, you know, every month or everywhere. You don't even have to make recurring donations to organizations. If you say, you know what, this is an election cycle, every election cycle, I'm going to make uh, an honest effort to the best of my ability to make a contribution to any, either not just political organization, maybe you make a donation to a specific candidate. Again, I'm not telling you to give to our organization, but just know that whatever you do, you have to be willing to put your money where your mouth is. Because if you don't put your money where your mouth is, you don't have a mouth. You just have ears. Ooh, that is deep. Go ahead, Brittany. That was a good one. All right. So we've talked about the two main votes that we're concerned with. Again, there are many other votes that we could get into, but again, those were just the two votes that we kind of took issue with. So now we're going to look at the broader issues that we have with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, okay? And there's two issues that our organization has with her as a candidate. Uh, the first is her overall stand on illegal immigration, um, which she makes very clear in a lot of ways, okay? Uh, then we also take issue with her overall stand on biological gender, which again, she makes very clear in a lot, a lot of ways. And she's not, she's hiding it, but she's not. You'll see what I'm going to be talking about in just a second, okay? But looking at the issue of biological gender, OK, remember how I told you in the very beginning of this podcast that our uh, uh, podcast uh, talks about the politics of five key issues. We don't just talk about them because they're just stuff we want to talk about. We talk about them because in the current election cycle, based on data and research, those have been found to be important and key issues for voters. OK, so when we identify the issues, what we then do is we look and we say, where does our organization stand on this issue? And we use that stand that we come to uh, as a means of testing, are we going to support politicians or are they, we not going to support politicians based on do they, you know, if they fall in line with what we want or are they completely in opposition of what we want to see happen on this issue? Hopefully that makes sense to you, okay? So when we took the issue of biological gender, when we did the research and we found out that, hey, this is something that's actually important to voters in this time, our organization believes, based on research, not just personal beliefs, but based on research, that a person's biological gender is what they are and how they should be classified for their entire life, okay? Now, there is an exception to this, and that is when a person is intersex. I've spoken in depth about this before in a different episode. I don't remember the episode, but uh, just a very quick summary. An intersex person is different than a transgender person. For a transgender person, they, if another person were to look at their body, assuming that they hadn't had any surgeries or they hadn't been on any type of hormones, uh, a person, another person outside of themselves would be able to look at them and quickly and immediately identify that's a man, that's a woman. Physically, they very clearly present themselves. The problem that a person who is transgender has is that in their minds, they either 
don't see what everyone else sees, maybe kind of think of like um, dysmorphia or dis, what is it? Dysphoria. Like what is it uh, when the people who are skinny, they look at themselves and they swear that they're really fat. And so then they end up with like other eating disorders. It's kind of like a similar thing. It's a mental thing. So they either physically and they literally from their own eyes don't see what everyone else sees um, or they see that, hey, I clearly, let's say, have a penis and I'm a man, but in their mind, they either just believe whether because of trends or, you know, whatever, uh, especially when you talk about rapid gender onset dysphoria with children, a lot of that is like with trends, you'll see like, for instance, um, a child might have like a group of friends and it's not unusual when one decides they're transgenders others in the group, kind of like, again, it's trendy. It's the end thing to do. Okay. Uh, again, and that's specifically with rapid gender onset dysphoria, rap rapid onset gender dysphoria, something to that extent. <laughs> but so now when you look at an actual intersex person, these are people that previously, uh, were known as hermaphrodites. Um, and the difference is with an intersex person, if another person looked at them, they either would have a hard time coming to a conclusion about if they're a male or female based on what they see, or if they didn't have a hard time, they would um, not be able to come to a conclusion at all. And it's because their organs, their sexual organs, uh, don't physically look the same as everybody else. Okay, so do you see the difference in intersex person that's typically someone who has a chromosomal abnormality, something that makes their body physically present itself in a way that's not consistent with the norms, okay? With a transgender person, that's all about in their minds or in their eyes, it's about them as opposed to society. Do you see? Intersex is more society, you know, can't really see, they can't tell, uh, the transgender person is, it's all about me. I don't feel like a man today. I don't feel like a woman today. I don't want to be a man because I don't agree that men have to, you know, provide like whatever, whatever goes on in their mind, it's all about them. Okay. So that's the different now difference. Now, when it comes to an intersex person, typically <laughs> because that is something that's physical, a lot of those people are born like that, okay? And when they're born like that, the, the norm as we, as the data tells us, is that the parents in, in, uh, in, in, um, in cooperation with the doctor, uh, but ultimately, ultimately tends to fall on the parents to determine, is this child going to have surgery to, you know, present itself as a boy or to present itself as a girl, okay? You do have some situations where very rarely the parents say, well, we're not going to make that decision. But most often, in concert with the doctors, the parents make a determination based on the easiest kind of route to go, based on the anatomy. And it might be easier for the doctor to construct a penis or a vagina, something along those lines. Something else to kind of note, since I'm noting that, is uh, when you talk about the differences between intersex people and transgender people, is typically transgender people tend to have, unless they've had surgery, 
they tend to have functional reproductive organs because they haven't had surgery, haven't had, you know, hormone replacements. So because nothing is wrong with what they have, they just don't like it or choose not to see it, whatever. Um, they typically tend to function with intersex people. There's a higher percentage of people in that category whose sex organs do not work. Um, so just, again, that's not consistently the rule, but that's, when you apply logic, which is something that society has kind of thrown out the window, when you apply logic, you rarely, I mean, you rarely are like confused about what's an intersex person. And a lot of times what you're seeing too uh, in this transgender movement, you're seeing the transgenders really try to embrace intersex people. Obviously, I think on a human level, they care about the intersex people, but I I really believe that they're trying to embrace intersex people, not so much because of the human level of, of the, the care of, of their humanity, but because it gives validity to their movement and to their agenda you know, kind of like an unscrupulous kind of thing. But so all of that said, when a person is intersex, if their parents and the doctor haven't made the decision about if they're going to be male or female, obviously we would support based on the fact of the medical necessity, um, we would support them making the decision as an individual if they want to live their life as a male or woman. But if you've been born as a man or you've been born as a woman and medical intervention is not needed with your reproductive organs, you need to stick with what you've got. That's our official stand as an organization, okay? Uh, we're utterly against people changing their biological gender if there is no medical need to do it. And by medical, we don't mean like in your mind, there's a mental health crisis because you're having a bad day or because you're dealing with another unfortunate mental health issue um, that makes you literally not see that your penis is okay and it's normal and it's healthy and it's given to you. you know, like, you, you get what I'm saying here. I hope you do. All right, so now we're going to get into the nitty gritty of some stuff. Now that all of the stuff that I needed to say was out of the way, you probably were like, well, Brittany, that wasn't what you had to say. No, it was not. Again, we're going to get into, again, outside of the votes, um, the support for uh, how we know Senator Kirsten Gillibrand feels a certain way about these two issues. And and how, we're going to talk about... Uh, how she's making it very clear what she wants and, and what a presidency uh, of Kirsten Gillibrand would look like. Okay. So on December 18th of last year, several senators, including Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, wrote a letter to Margaret Waychurt, uh, the acting director of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management. Okay. And essentially this was a letter that demanded that the, the Trump administration protect the rights of transgender federal employees. Doesn't sound like anything bad, right? Well, let me read you the actual letter. Okay. It's not too long of a letter. So, again, this is uh, from several senators, including Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, on December 18th of last year. <clears throat> Dear Acting Director Waychart, 
We write to express our serious concern that guidance meant to ensure transgender federal employees are treated with dignity and respect has been removed from the website of the U.S. Office of Personnel Management, OPM. We request that you immediately make the guidance available online so that managers, supervisors, and employees are equipped with accurate information and fully understand their responsibilities in the federal workforce. The original guidance addressed common questions that agency managers and federal employees had raised with OPM identifying issues and core concepts specific to understanding rights and fair treatment of transgender employees. The new guidance that replaced it omits essential information, including any reference to transgender individuals, greatly diminishing OPM's ability to educate federal agencies on anti-discrimination policies and retain a productive federal workforce as diverse as the people it serves. In a statement last month, 178 companies, including Microsoft, IBM, Google, and many others, affirmed that diversity and inclusion are good for business while discrimination significantly harms transgender people and imposes enormous productivity costs. In the business statement on transgender equality, business leaders noted that the importance of guidance, and other resources to support their transgender employees, citing that more than 80% of the Fortune 500 have cleared gender identity protections, two-thirds have transgender inclusive health care coverage, hundreds have <coughs> LGBTQ plus and allies, business resource groups, and internal training efforts. On June 25th, 2018, the OPM director's blog issued a statement celebrating LGBT Pride Month 2018, which committed OPM to human capital management strategies that attract, develop, and retain a high-performing, engaged, and diverse federal workforce where each employee feels valued and respected as a member of the federal family. The statement also encouraged all federal employees to further commit themselves to the progress we've made in creating a culture that is aware, accepting, inclusive, and respectful of our diversity. We hope that you will continue this commitment by making the original guidance supporting transgender employees available online in order to promote safe and positive workplace conditions across the federal government. We also request information on what further actions OPM will take under your leadership to ensure the privacy and rights of transgender federal employees. We appreciate your consideration and look forward to receiving your prompt response on this important issue. That, my friends, is the end of the letter. Let me make this clear, okay? No one, including our organization, including me personally, is advocating for anything bad being done to transgender federal employees, transgender 
anybody, okay? Transgender people should not be discriminated against at all, okay? The problem that you should have with a letter like the one I just read uh, is the fact that dignity and respect are due to all, not just people who choose to wear certain clothing that may not be consistent with society's norm. It, 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 it's not just due to people who have certain sexual preferences. Is dignity and respect not due to everybody? Okay. Uh, another problem you should have is that they're trying to push for forced compliance with their ideology under the cloak of rights. This isn't just happening, you know, here in this letter, you consistently see this against uh, or across the spectrum pretty much everywhere. They, they want you to comply with their ideology and they use terms like rights or inclusive or, you know, they, they're, they're forcing compliance under the guise of those things. OK, another problem that you should have is the fact that diversity inclusion should include everybody, all groups, you know, the gays, the straights, the blacks, the whites, the non-speaking English people, the people who speak English. Uh, if you ask me, diversity and inclusion should be across the socioeconomic scale, you know, not just low-income people, but, you know, the low-income people want to turn you against the one and two percent. They deserve diversity and inclusion too, you know. It, it should be for everybody, not just a minority group that politicians see potential for, especially not just like literal capital in the form of contributions, but they see enormous political capital there because they look at the data and they say, this is an important issue. So let's get on the bandwagon. No, we it, not just those groups, but everybody deserves diversity and inclusion. You should also have a problem with the fact that the senators, including again, Senator Kirsten Gillibrand referenced celebrating LGBT. Q plus Pride Month. Now notice, as, as I've recently done, where's the S on that for straight people? Okay. I'm just saying, you know, whatever. Uh, you would think that since a majority of our species tend to fall under the straight cloak, you would think that we'd be included in that acronym. Um, but I guess LGBTQS plus or uh, SLGBTQ Keep, like, no, we don't get anywhere on there. But anyways, so, but it's not so much a problem that they mentioned Pride Month, but I don't know if you know about the straight pride parade that's going on in Boston. It's being planned for some time in August. I don't know if an exact date has come out yet. Uh, we're definitely following what's going on there. We actually have um, reached our tentacles out to get in contact with um, their president over there. You know, I serve as our president on our board of directors, as well as our CEO in this organization. So um, I've done some reaching out and I'd love to find a way for our organization to get involved, okay? Um, but um, anywho, if you think about it, a lot of not just Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, but a lot of the senators who uh, were uh, attached to this letter, um, and you've got, you know, let me see, you might know Bernie Sanders, he was on here, um, Jeff Merkley, uh Elizabeth Warren, trying to think of people who are relevant now. Some of these people aren't relevant. Kamala Harris. Okay. Those are, so pretty much a lot of these presidential candidates, they're attached to this letter too. And I bet you 
A lot of them haven't put out any statements about the straight pride parade. And if they do, they're trying to distance themselves from that parade or they're condemning the parade, but they have no problem forcing compliance uh, with celebrating the LGBTQ LMNOP, or as some people say, the alphabet people's pride parade. Okay. That is a problem. Okay. Another problem you should have is that specifically when you look at, again, I know I mentioned that other presidential candidates uh, signed this letter uh, and want compliance with all this stuff. But when you look at Senator Gillibrand, she has a commitment to the transgender lobby that is not equal to her commitment to what some people would call regular men and women. Where is her Again, mention of, I don't think at that time the straight pride parade was in the works, but where's her mention of diversity and inclusion for regular men and women? Where's her mention of respect and dignity for regular men and women? Where's her inclusion of events for women? Where's her inclusion of events for men? Her commitment is really to this transgender lobby, and you really need to pay attention. Now, if you ask me, one of the biggest sticking points that we have with Senator Kirsten Gillibrand and her bid to become the next president of the United States uh, related to her overall stand on biological gender is a letter that she and other senators wrote to the Secretary of Health and Human Services seeking to end efforts to redefine sex to exclude transgender persons. Now, if you're like, wait, what? I'm a little bit confused. Uh, if you know anything about what the last administration did, they did, uh, a, a lot of people like to look at President Obama as the first African-American president, um, as not just an African-American woman, but as a uh, an African-American who supported both President Obama's bids for presidency. When I look back at what he did um, as a president, not only am I ashamed, but I'm ashamed specifically as an African American. Um, you know, he loved to, to or or supporters of his loved to tout the fact that he was the first African American president. And you had a lot of people who would joke that no, he wasn't. Bill Clinton was. But anyways, it's neither here nor there. Um, you would look and you would, you know, hear about, oh, he's this black man and this, that, and the other. But one of the things that I had to look at when I made the decision to leave the Democratic Party was the fact that, yo, we didn't get much from President Obama, if anything at all, specifically as black people. He wasn't, if you ask me, the first black president, he was the first transgender president. He wasn't literally transgender uh uh, he was the first LGBTQ plus president. He wasn't literally lesbian, gay, transgender, bisexual, whatever that list of acronym means. He just did a lot for those people. He did more for the LGBTQ, the alphabet people's community than he ever did for black people. 
So if you are black, if you ask me, like me, you really need to have a serious evaluation, especially if you were a, a supporter of President Obama. Okay, I'm just saying, just kind of as a side note. But okay, uh, during his president, I say all that because during his presidency, again, he did a lot for them. And one of the things that his administration really pushed to have done was uh, a redefining of sex to include transgender people. Okay, this current administration, administration, God help him and God thank him, uh, is uh, has made serious efforts to take back the definition of sex to be what most people understand sex and gender to be, okay? So before I go on to kind of look at this letter and read it to you, I, you know, I, I have to absolutely say before I get into it that politicians are both openly and secretly pushing for the transgender agenda, okay? Um, I, if you listen to one of our recent uh, podcast episodes called At Resource Pack, it talked about how our organization was kicked off of Twitter uh, and it was done right after we talked about legislation that uh, was pushing this transgender agenda. Um, and um, that's a whole debacle I'm not going to go into. But um, a lot of people didn't know about that legislation or even that legislation like it was, 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 was out there because a lot of times what happens is, um, you don't hear about it until they have whipped enough votes to guarantee that it is going to pass if it hasn't yet passed, or they talk about it on the mainstream media after it's already been passed. So it's too late for the public to influence anything on it. Okay. Um, so you have a lot of stuff like that going on that you don't hear about. Uh, but then you also have a lot of letters like the letter I'm about to read to you that is forcing compliance with these their political agenda to push the transgender agenda. Uh, it's forcing compliance from cabinet members. Cabinet members are uh, members appointed by the president. They have no you know, real voting authority. They run the federal agencies and stuff like that. That's another way that these politicians get their agenda done. So that said, let me get right to this letter and let you know what is going on. So this letter was written and sent by um, members of the Senate who mostly are Democrats. So you're talking uh, Bernie Sanders, you're talking uh, Jeff Merkley, Sherrod Brown, uh, Cory Booker, Amy Klobuchar, um, uh, let's see, uh, Chris Murphy, Kamala Harris, and of course, Mrs. Kirsten Gillibrand, the good old Gillibrand, all right? So it was sent to Alexander Azar, the Secretary of Health and Human Services, okay? And again, this was done um, in November, okay? So this was done like right at election time, okay? So, <coughs> excuse me, <clears throat> this is a little bit lengthy, uh, but I'm going to get through it relatively quickly, so give me a few minutes here, okay? Dear Secretary Azar, we write to express our strong concern about reports that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, HHS, is engaged in an effort to redefine sex to exclude 
transgender and gender nonconforming people from civil from federal civil rights. This action would have grave consequences for millions of individuals and families, depriving transgender and gender nonconforming people of critical protections under federal law. When asked about this on PBS NewsHour, you said, I would caution, do not believe everything you read in the New York Times, yet gave evasive, indirect responses when pressed. We ask that you immediately bring an end to this effort to uh, effort and unequivocally disavow the reported memo. In an article dated October 21, 1st, 2018, the New York Times reported that an internal memo circulated by HHS proposes to redefine sex under uh, the title of Education Amendments of 1972, which prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex in education programs. Section 1557 of the Affordable Care Act, ACA, prohibits discrimination in covered health programs on the grounds prohibited under, and it gives the title. So redefining sex for purposes of this title would also impact a broad array of health programs. The report states that HHS is considering redefining sex as a person's status as male or female based on immutable biological traits identifiable by or before birth. I'm going to pause from reading it, and I just want you to consider they are mad that essentially, given what we're reading here, that we are taking back the definition of sex and saying, Based on what you were born as, you're a male or woman. This is literally what they're complaining about in this letter, okay? So I'm continuing here. Furthermore, the press report states that your department argues the sex listed on a person's birth certificate as originally issued shall constitute definitive proof of a person's sex unless rebutted by reliable genetic evidence. And that disputes, uh, wait. Let me see where I am. Genetic evidence. And that disputes about an individual's sex would be clarified using genetic testing. The redefinition of sex described by the New York Times embraces an outdated view of sex and gender and ignores the overwhelming consensus within the medical and scientific community that gender identity may or may not align with the sex at a person's birth. Furthermore, the American Psychological Association has called this redefinition of sex wrongheaded and said it ignores the complexity of the spectrum of sex, including natural variation in gender identity and the existence of people with differences in sex development. When asked about the report, even your own director of the Center for Disease and Control and Prevention said stigmatizing individuals is not in the interest of public health. We are concerned that this effort to redefine sex is putting politics ahead of science hmm, and access to health care. Redefining sex to include only a person's status as male or female based on immutable biological traits identifiable by or before birth is an absurd, what word really, approach to the law and is inconsistent with precedent. Guys, oh my lord. Okay, this does go on 
I'm going to kind of skip over some stuff because again, this is a, a really long letter. Um, but I'm going to stick, skip to this kind of last paragraph here. Okay. Uh, it was not officially the last because it gets into a list of what they demand happen within two weeks. Um, but I want to read this last part. Okay. And getting back to the letter, it says the redefinition of sex reported in the New York times would have devastating consequences for millions of people who do not recognize themselves as the sex assigned to them at birth or who are gender non-conforming. Gender and trans, transgender and gender non-conforming people already experience harassment and discrimination at high rates. We are also concerned that this arbitrary definition of sex could invite unlawful intrusions into individual medical and genetic privacy. Instead of dictating HH, instead of ed- dedicating HHS, HHS resources to increase discrimination in education and healthcare, you should be working to vigorously enforce the civil rights laws that Congress has enacted to protect the rights of transgender and gender non-conforming people. So uh, again, this does go on, but it's too long. I don't want to take up too much more of your time with this absurd letter. Okay, so we're going to go ahead and end that letter right there. There were so many points when I was reading that letter that I, you know, there are a couple of points where I did kind of stop and, and interject my own kind of thoughts, but I'm telling you there were so many more points because like, guys, think about it. You know, these senators, including Senator Kirsten Gillibrand, again, a lot of these people are, they've thrown their hat in the rings for president of the United States. They're concerned that the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services and engaged, uh, that, they're, that they're engaging in an effort to redefine sex, yet they are the ones trying to tell the public uh, what sex is by pushing their transgender ideology. Okay? They're trying to tell you that it's natural and it's normal that a person just wakes up and says, you know what? I'm not a man today. I'm a woman. You know what? I'm a cat today. You know what? I'm a this today. I'm a that today. They, they're trying to push their agenda, saying that you're pushing yours by saying that what you can clearly look down and see is what you are. They're trying to tell you that it's natural and normal for people to just change their gender every day and be, as they say, non-conforming. Okay, quick note, remember the podcast episode I did, if you're an avid listener, uh, about, it was it was a while back, about Senator Kirsten Gillibrand campaigning and interviewing with a transgender um, at a gay bar? Yes, I'm not making that up. I really did do an episode on that. I don't remember the name of it, but I did, okay? You have to connect the dots with these people and these politicians to see their real intentions, okay? Uh, the Politicians like Senator Kirsten Gillibrand have very real and clear intentions. You just have to look at look at where she goes, okay? Look at who she's with. Look at who she's deciding to spend her very limited resource of time, especially as a political political candidate. Who does she choose to spend her time with? Who does she choose to let interview her? Who does she choose to walk and go and do parades with? That is where her real intentions lie. Look at these, you know, I, I've said before, again, I don't remember the exact episode, but I talked about um, putting together or it was an episode where I was talking about how entering into the 2020 season, you're going to be hearing a lot of pundits say, oh, this person's going to win. This person's not going to win. And a lot of it is what they're trying to do is influence 
uh, your actions based on what they tell you. They're trying to, especially let's say, for instance, you support a politician. They may, you know, try to influence your support by telling you that your politician has no chance of winning. So that way it influences your action. Maybe you're less likely to go to campaign rallies. Maybe you're less likely to even vote. Maybe you're less likely to make that contribution to either a campaign or a political organization because based on what they've told you, you think that they have no chance of winning. Okay. Um, But in that episode, I talked also about how there are certain levels of seriousness that need to be given to what politicians say on certain platforms. I mentioned earlier, we were kicked off of Twitter. While Twitter is a very active place, one of the things that you have to realize from a marketing perspective is Twitter typically has a lot of short conversations, typically confined to a single tweet, uh, maybe one or two tweets, but it's very rare that conversations expand beyond that. Uh, And people (coughs) typically engage in a lot of different conversations. So they're not really dedicated to the conversations that they're having to begin with because it's too general. Okay. That said, I mentioned how when it comes to what a, a politician tweets, Take it with a grain of a grain of salt. Even as recently as uh, the president talking about how he has a plan to deport millions of illegal aliens. Yeah, you take the tweet with a grain of salt, but if you see the actions behind it, or if you see cumulative communication, other communications in concert with that then you might want to give it a little bit more leverage okay so i say that when it i say that because when you look at what senator kirsten gillibrand is out there tweeting take that with a grain of salt okay you might want to take her press releases a little bit more seriously again given the fact that it's targeted a, a press release is targeted towards the press <clears throat> they're typically straight to the point they don't have a lot of fluff you might not take um blog posts as seriously as you do her press releases But something (laughs) that you can give a little bit more seriousness to in determining where a politician such as Senator Kirsten Gillibrand stands on issues is where are her votes going? It's a limited resource. Okay, where is she spending her time? Her time is a limited resource. Where is she spending? um, Where is she spending uh, her other forms of capital that she possesses? Okay. Um, one of those forms of capital she has is her ability to influence cabinet positions. When you look at the government and how the government is constructed, you have certain arms of the government that enforce legislation, certain arms of the government that pass legislation. In her capacity as a senator, she helps to pass legislation, okay? But she's not necessarily involved in the enforcement in it. But she does have the capital, the resources to influence enforcement by influencing cabinet positions. Because those cabinet positions are in place partially to... uh, serve their agencies that enforce the laws that have been passed by Congress. So she, when you look at what she did, she wrote this letter, her and other senators, they wrote this letter, they wrote this letter to someone who's in a position to enforce. um, Well, I don't want to say necessarily, necessarily enforce, uh, but because health and health and human services, obviously they they enforce laws, but um, this was I don't 
I, I, I don't want to say it in a way that's confusing, but she used her position to influence the political spectrum outside of her, uh, I guess you would say, government-given, God-given uh, capacity as a senator. Hopefully that makes some semblance of sense to you, okay? But you, So I, I say all that to say that you've got to look at more than just the surface level of communications. And I understand that a lot of you aren't out there digging up letters. A lot of you aren't out there uh, researching votes. But if you're not going to do the legwork yourself, I, I, I caution you that you're doing yourself a disservice. You are really harming yourself and your ability to be an, an educated voter. If you don't connect yourself, as much as I'm going to self-promote here and say connect yourself with organizations like ours that get that information out to you, you know, you might come across other organizations or, you know what I mean, the other, other resources that you can use to get yourself in the know. Because again, these politicians, they only want you to see the tweets. They only want you to see them out there, you know, shaking hands and kissing babies out there on the campaign trails. But at the end of the day, they are doing so much more uh, openly, but yet secretly to promote their agenda. So don't just listen to the well-controlled sound bites that their campaigns put out or the, the tweets that they're members of their team put out. If you just listen to those guys, you're going to miss the bigger picture of all politicians, but specifically with Kirsten Gillibrand, if you don't pay attention to things like these letters and her votes, you're going to miss a very big red flag of what a presidency of President Kirsten Gillibrand would look like. And it's very alarming. All right. So I have made a decision. This was not anything when I started recording today's podcast that I set out to do, but um, I've made an observation. And as a result, I've made uh, an immediate executive decision. Okay. Um, I am already well, a little, well, not well, but about five minutes over an hour for this podcast episode. Um, when we first started our podcast program, um, I very well took note that longer episodes didn't do too well as far as the amount of people that listened as, as well as how long people actually listened to the episode. Um, and so I'm really at a critical point uh, as far as time. And I have a lot more to say, okay? Um, when I record podcast episodes, I don't have like word for word what I say, but I have kind of notes about things that need to be talked about. Um, quite frankly, guys, there is more that I need to talk about uh, regarding our official opposition to a President Kirsten Gillibrand, okay? So, Based on that observation, the executive decision that I have made literally in this moment before I hit this record button in this very moment um, is I have decided that I'm going to end this episode and we are going to have a part two uh, because if I don't, this episode probably will be upwards of an hour, somewhere between an hour, 30, hour, 45 minutes. So we're going to go ahead and save this for part two uh, and um, yeah. Yeah. 
I'm going to save us all a lot of heartache. Okay. So thank you so much for listening. Um, be sure to, uh, again, check out the press release. If you have not seen it, if you want to see it for yourself and be sure to tune in tomorrow and to make sure you don't miss tomorrow's episode and you can get the remaining information on Senator Kirsten Gillibrand on why we do not support her as president and why you should consider the same. Uh, make sure to like us on Facebook so that way you can get a notification when we put that episode out. Uh, you'll find a link to our Facebook page in the description box of this episode. So thank you so much for listening. You've been listening to our PAC Politics Podcast. I'm your host, Ms. Brittany McDowell. Uh, enjoy the rest of your day and please be sure to check out this part two tomorrow. Thank you for listening, guys. Have a good one.